So uh, for all of the students and visitors and others who are online, hello uh, and welcome to uh, the uh, Serious Security Seminar here. Uh, I'm, I'm really happy to be able to introduce uh, Professor Scott Shackelford from Indiana University. Um, you know, here in Indiana, we make a lot of jokes about Purdue-IU rivalry, uh, but great universities, wonderful faculty at both places. Scott is uh, an internationally known expert in the area of security policy, law, uh, privacy, and aspects that surround the use of cybersecurity. So it's, it's just a great pleasure to be able to welcome him virtually to Purdue uh, to tell us about the Internet of Things and what everyone needs to know. So Scott, welcome and please take it away. Thank you so much, Pat, for that very, very kind and, and generous welcome. And, and thanks again to, to Sirius and Purdue for this invitation. It's an honor and a pleasure, guys. Um, I wish, of course, that we could do this in person, but I love the chance that we get to do it, it virtually. And I, I look forward to what I'm sure is going to be a great discussion. What I have queued up here for us is a little bit of content, as Faf kindly mentioned, from a recent book um, that I wrote on the Internet of Things. This is part of Oxford Press's What Everyone Needs to Know series. So it's very much meant for more of a lay audience, frankly. Um, and there's chapters there digging into prevailing governance issues, security, privacy, um, even looking at some analogies, including public health that we can talk a little bit about. For, for most of it, my guess is for this crowd, it's very well trodden ground. So I'm going to go through some of that material a little on the quicker side. I'd welcome any questions as we go or any clarifications, though, of course, we'll have time um, at the end for discussion, too. But anything I can clarify, don't hesitate. For the second half, um, I'm going to split and do a little bit of a focus on a recent report, because I think that might be even more um, useful and topical for us. This is coming from a, uh, a report for the Executive Council on Cybersecurity that the governor organized uh, here in Indiana a couple of years ago. It's called State of Hoosier Cybersecurity 2020. Um, in just a couple of minutes when we get to that, I'll go ahead and put up a link in the chat box. But if you did a search for it, of course, it would come up as well. I think it's hosted on the Attorney General's site and the Indiana Business Research Center site. Um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong about that, if anybody sees it. But I'll, I'll walk through a little bit about that. We did a survey that went out to uh, pretty much every level of government. So lots of local governments responded, lots of small utilities, small businesses. And we found you know, some interesting results with regards to cybersecurity best practices, or lack thereof, frankly, um, as well as uh, uptake of new trends like insurance and how that's being utilized and understood and sometimes misunderstood about what it does and doesn't cover. So we'll talk a little bit about that too in case that gins up any interesting discussion or questions. Um, just a little bit of bookkeeping up front. Um, I am coming at this topic, even though I've tried to educate myself more on the technical aspects of cybersecurity over the years, I, guilty as charged, am a liberal arts guy from way back. My, I did a JD, of course, but my PhD is actually in international relations. So a lot of my research is focused more on comparative um, cybersecurity, law and policy, critical infrastructure protection, you know, IoT governance, etc. Um, so just know that going into this discussion, I would love to weigh in as I'm able on any more technical questions, but my core kind of bailiwick here is more law policy governance issues. And this is the program that I chair at IU that's built off of this. And this is a, a combination of our computer science, the Luddy School, as well as uh, business and law coming together to offer this. The other thing I wanted to mention up front is I have the, uh, the honor right now of being the executive director of the Ostrom Workshop um, down at IU. And some of you might have heard of, of Lynn Ostrom and the Ostrom Workshop, perhaps some haven't. Lynn is you know, famous in some circles, at least, for winning the Nobel Prize in economics uh, back in 2009. And you know, the, the workshop itself that she and her husband, Vincent, founded is almost 50 years old now. And it's gone through lots of iterations over the years. Their core work was on addressing issues of commons governance and how communities can self-organize to address collective action problems, whether that's related to natural resource use, such as a fishery, um, or toward the end of her career, issues of climate governance and climate change. These days, I just wanted to mention that we have several programs running on data governance, including lots of work right now happening in blockchain governance and AI governance, um, as well as a program that I head up uh, on cybersecurity and internet governance. 
And we've done a variety of um, research projects under this program over the years. Um, a year ago, the topic was the theme of the year really was election security. Right now, in this current year, we're starting this new project on cyber peace. And we just had a cyber peace forum this last week as part of a virtual Davos event, which is really interesting. It's an effort to bring together lots of efforts around cyber norm building um, and think you know, about what's really the goal here, right? What's the best we can hope for in terms of peace on the internet and how through this multi-stakeholder process, learning from other analogies, even including climate, how can we get there? So it's an interesting discussion. Um, it's a timely time, frankly, to have it with the incoming Biden administration now in power and some new, new interest on these types of multilateral and multi-stakeholder dialogue. So if anybody's interested in some of those topics as well, I just encourage you, you can, there's a link on the top here, but just do a search for Ostrom Workshop. There's more than a dozen working groups. Um, there's these active programs underway and we'd love to have you um, in the mix. A lot of cool speakers coming through. This last year, actually, we were able to welcome uh, Bruce Schneier to give our memorial lecture on cybersecurity and internet governance. Okay, and then lastly, this is, as I said, the Internet of Things book. This is where that's coming from, some of this content. I also just last year wrote this other book on governing new frontiers in the information age. This is a very different, frankly, kind of book, much more of an academic tome, so be warned, frankly. Um, but it looks at all of uh, all these different frontiers in the international system, including classic global common spaces, tries to distill, frankly, governance best practices that have emerged across those arenas and applies it to cyber, right? That's kind of the crux of it in the last chapter in particular. So it was an interesting exercise. If anybody is similarly kind of keen on exploring some of those analogies, looking at lessons from other global common spaces, you know, what does cyber have to do with space, right? Or the atmosphere or even um, Antarctica, et cetera. Happy to explore some of those topics too, because it's a lot of fun and there's more synergies than you might think. Okay. And as I said, this is very well-trodden material. So I'm gonna skate through some of these initial slides here very quickly, just to make sure we have plenty of time um, for discussion and kind of the more interesting stuff, frankly, toward the end. As SPAF can attest, um, and as many of you are very much aware too, cyber uh, security is, is by no means a new issue. Um, uh, it's been around for decades at this point, right? I'm thinking back, SPAF in particular, to uh, you know even the Morris Forum in the late 80s, right? Um, but you know what's interesting these days is how quickly cyber attacks have proliferated um, in number of sophistication and severity, and the fact that they're targeting companies and countries alike. I mean, look at solar winds um, alone, and all the different nuances and, and, and complexities to that particular um, exploit as it got into the wild and all the damages caused. And we'll talk a little bit about that at the end when we get to the insurance context, because that's already playing out there in some interesting ways. Um, one of the big issues, as many of you know, is that we don't have a really solid handle on the problem, in part because we don't have a really nice authoritative data set to build from, which is a tough starting point for policymakers. We have the starts of these of these data sets in terms of, uh, for example, breaches being reported to state's attorney general. We have that here in Indiana. Um, in fact, I've had, uh, they're, they're very forthcoming there. If anybody's interested, you can actually request and download all the data breaches that have been reported um, here in Indiana over the last few years. There's thousands of them, right? But it's only one piece of a very complex puzzle, which means that we have to rely on, you know, secondary sources of information. We have to take those with a grain of salt, of course, as we do that. Some interesting trends to keep track of there, uh, especially internationally, with GDPR now in force and a new version, it looks like now in the works that could create some more authorita authoritative public um, data sets for these types of exploits. But so far, you know, it's quite fractured. So that's a tough starting point. Um, it's only getting more complex, of course, because of this Internet of Things concept. Um, IoT itself, you know, this is an idea that's been around similarly for quite some time. Um, you know, there, there's different uh, ideas about exactly, you know, where it began. Um, oftentimes we point to a presentation by uh, Kevin Ashton in the late 90s, and it was more in reference to RFIT DAGs at that point. Um, how we can use technology to track products. Um, but, you know, these days, of course, it has a much more expansive meaning, though certainly there's no consensus on it. Um, there's even this phrase out there, the Internet of Everything, right? Is that something that's even possible, um, especially in an era, which we can talk more about from Internet governance perspectives, where we're seeing, you know, more and more efforts at data localization, um, banning TikTok, right, like India did last year as well. So more of these walls going up, making, making data governance harder at a time when we need more information sharing to get a better handle on this cyber threat that we're all facing in various ways. 
Um, IoT itself, of course, has really taken off recently, um, in part because of a convergence of several forces that have been underway um, for decades, really, right? Of course, incredibly um, you know, rapid uptake in the, in, in the speed of broadband access itself the, that was really holding back some of these technologies in the 80s and 90s. We're there at this point, right? Um, the cost of course, of connecting as well as going down dramatically in terms of the actual hardware used. Just as a quick aside, you know, I had the experience not too long ago where we had to replace our washer and dryer. And, you know, if it, it was pretty much the case that you could not find a washer and dryer that was not connected to, to the internet that wasn't rated, you know, at all highly on the likes of consumer reports. So we're, we've quickly entered into this world of, of that, especially for major appliances, but it's filtering down, as you guys know, that really is the norm, right? That's the norm in some really interesting and profound ways. And we've seen that We've seen that play out in terms of the security problems already. Um, often in class, I like to show that little clip from Andy Greenberg, you know, breaking into the uh, the Chrysler Jeep a couple of years ago, um, and how easy that was in that case uh, for that uh, for that to happen in the aftermath of it. It's 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 not a new problem again, but because we're at that scale, a bit of a tipping point of this hyper connected. Um, society that we have to start thinking long and hard about how in the world we're going to manage all of the security complexities, the privacy challenges, and what we can learn from other contexts, right, and trying to get a handle on this. And so far, it's been very much on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis, which I'll turn to in just a moment, which is also, you know, frankly, handicapping us to an extent. Um, this is just one example, you know, for how this uh, how, how seemingly well-intentioned <laughs> policies can have some uh, negative security impacts. Um, some of you might be familiar with this as well. This was a couple of years ago now um, when there was a Defense Department policy to encourage the use of soldiers to, to have, you know, basically Fitbits, to have fitness monitors. And the thinking was, oh, this is going to help with workforce readiness. Um, we're going to have a fit fighting force. This is, this is great. And obviously, lots of soldiers bought these, right? This was fantastic. Not thinking about, well, at the end of the day, these data were being uploaded to a uh, publicly available cloud format uh, in Shreva here. And as a result, anybody could download the resulting heat maps. And you had, you know, what were supposed to have been, you know, uh, quite secret military installations around the world uh, being disclosed, you know, in, in some cases, uh, even for the first time, really not a great day. Uh, for the for the Pentagon, there were some problems even with some Navy vessels back then. So this just goes to show about the kind of two pronged approach here. There's a lot of benefits for IoT, but we have to be mindful of what other vulnerabilities we're opening up by using it, um, especially in the workplace. All of this is getting more acute, of course, because of the incredibly crowded playing field. Um, as many of you can attest, I mean, just look at solar winds. There's a wide variety of both nation states as well as private firms, and for that matter, other organizations, I'm thinking of pretty advanced cybercrime networks now, um, that are using a lot of the vulnerabilities here to launch attacks, um, whether that are, you know, whether that's more for espionage, you know, as we saw with solar winds or actual attacks like has played out in Ukraine for the last five plus years now with, as, with regards to their, you know, for example, power grid being impacted, of course, information warfare itself being rapid. Um, in that context, Andy Greenberg, again, great book count um, that came out not too long ago, Sandworm, which I'd recommend if anybody wanted to dig into that in a bit more detail. But it's, it's, a, it's a tough time to think about how to do deterrence more effectively, because clearly, you know, in some cases, we just haven't been doing it very well. We were patting ourselves on the back a little bit after the elections, you know, what was that just two months ago, because of how look, it looked to be the most secure in history, right? And by all testaments, indeed, it was, then not, you know, a matter of weeks later, we had the first echoes of, you know, solar winds coming out. So that was, a, you know, indeed, a bit of a wake up call um, that, uh, that there's just a lot more, frankly, that, that we need to do. Um, both here nationally, of course, as well as internationally to do a better job at both, you know, deterrence by denial. So uh, in, ensuring an appropriate level of due diligence in our own systems to protect our critical infrastructure and potentially this idea of persistent engagement, which has been DOD policy since 2018, this idea of kind of active defense. Um, and it's going to be really interesting to see what the Biden administration does with that, right? Because there were a lot of criticisms back in 2016 that the Obama administration should have done more. We've seen that pivot. Some people think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's working relatively well, but at now at the same time, other countries and not just NATO allies are using these same tactics, right? Um, and taking up a bit, of, a bit of this emerging norm. And so we have to be comfortable with the results of that too.
So that's another discussion, of course, that we can have. As you know, so much of this is interrelated, which is one reason I find it so fascinating. So what can we do about this problem? Again, I'm skating through this pretty quick because I, I assume uh, I'm preaching to the choir here. We know we're not going to eliminate it. This is an exercise in managing risk, just like we do across lots of different contexts, right? We've tried various ways to do that um, in the cyber context, including by, frankly, just spending a boatload um, on the problem itself. Uh, you know, there's varying schools of thought about what the appropriate level of investment is. The, the stat you see at the bottom of the screen there, that came from a study uh, by Larry Gordon at the University of Maryland a couple of years ago. I just find it fitting because it's just so specific, right, <laughs> which is interesting. Uh, but it does point to this bigger issue of whether or not we're seeing a market failure, you know, when it comes to cybersecurity. Um, markets, after all, very good at producing private goods, um, your, your, your iPhone, your laptop, et cetera, not so good at producing public goods, like a healthy environment, national security. Should cybersecurity just be considered a component of national security? If so, should the government have a bigger role in guaranteeing it? And if that's the case, how, right? Where is that line between DHS, for example, and CISA protecting our critical infrastructure since, you know, 85 plus percent is in private hands? And when should the, you know, Cyber Command and the DOD step in? How should that work in practice? And those are some of the tough challenges we're facing, you know, across all of these different sectors. But now it's been playing out in some interesting ways in IoT in particular, which I'll turn to in just a minute. Um, just quickly, another way that, you know, sometimes this is thought about these days. And I see benefits and drawbacks, frankly, in this approach is not only treating cybersecurity as a cost center or ideally a competitive advantage, right? But even as a corporate social responsibility to get back to um, you know, some of SPAF's fantastic work in this domain. And you know, uh, I, I see this playing out in a number of ways, right? On the one hand, and I've, I've written a couple articles on this, one on sustainable cybersecurity, and there's one on climate change and cyber attacks. It features in that uh, 2020 book on governing new frontiers that I mentioned earlier too. There's a lot of tools that have been developed in the sustainability movement that could have some utility in helping us think about, conceptualize um, cyber risk. These integrated reporting frameworks can be useful. Um, basically, if you're a publicly traded firm these days, you have to issue basically an annual sustainability report, which measures the impact of your operations, you know, not only on the economy, um, uh, but really on, on the environment, on society, on your community writ large. There's this movement of ESG plus T that some of you might have heard of to include technology within this effort. And we've seen some companies now do that. Um, Eli Lilly actually is an example. They now include information on privacy and cybersecurity in their integrated sustainability report, which is interesting. That doesn't compel different decision-making at the board level to be clear, but the idea is it better informs boards about the risks they face. Though, as you know, measuring risk, measuring potential costs in the cyber context is no easy feat there. What's the timeline, right? Are you worried about identity theft 10 years from now? How can you hope to quantify that today? There's certificate programs out there as well. The EU, frankly, is far ahead of us on that. When you think about the IoT context in particular, which I'll once again say more about in just a second, we've seen some efforts in the in the EU with their CE trust mark, uh, which is you know basically a you know a stamp on a box. Think about Energy Star here in the U.S., right? And the idea is, can you distill something about cybersecurity and privacy best practices that would resonate with a consumer um, in a meaningful way, right? Would that be color coded? How could that work? Um, the UK actually has a Cyber Essentials Plus certificate that they've rolled out that businesses can apply to and get and actually put on the box. Here in the US, you know, frankly, it's been more civil society driven. Consumer Reports um, does have that in terms of their digital standard. They've started to rank, for example, smart televisions with regards to their, uh, their digital standard. We were involved with a capstone project with them a couple of years ago, so that's why I know a little bit about that. Um, it's, it, it's a wonderful first step, right? But clearly there needs to be a lot more coordination, not even necessarily from the government. Some of these systems are, you know, frankly, pretty private sector driven, but I think it's an interesting exercise and question that, that we can grapple with as well about, could you even design a trust mark for IoT devices that really would be meaningful for consumers in, in some way, right? The US Chamber was interested in this idea about a year ago. I haven't heard what's happened with it since, um, but that, that's another thing that, um, that I'm interested in at least. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on. In terms of managing all these vulnerabilities from the bottom up, again, talk about preaching to the choir. Most of what I'm talking about here are eight, nine, and 10. Uh, this is borrowing from Peter Swire. Um, from, he's a professor at Georgia Tech these days. 
So, you know, if you, if you use the OSI stack metaphor, that, that's kind of what, what's sitting on top of the stack that I'm focusing on now just to help provide a little bit of context. So what can we do at all of these levels? You know, supply chain risk in the IoT context is just so tough, right? Um, putting aside even solar winds, I mean, this is just such a multifaceted uh, and expensive proposition to really have a high degree of confidence. You know, for example, that your vendor network is actually using the NIST cybersecurity framework, like you say they should, et cetera. That requires third-party vetting. It, it requires actually going out and checking potentially. Um, that's tough. A lot of companies aren't in a good position to actually do that because we don't do a good job, frankly, of even rewarding security in the IoT context, at least so far, right? And that's starting to change in some jurisdictions as we'll turn to. But you know, that, that's a core piece of the problem. Um, you know, the protocols themselves, of course, built on trust, that trust can be misplaced. Some partial fixes like DNSSEC, you know, not haven't been um, taken up to the extent that I know a lot of us would like to have seen. Interesting about the liability piece, um, we'll talk about this in, in the context of France in just a couple minutes, but they've made a pivot in, in not, not too long ago, I think about six months ago, to start treating internet connected devices under their products liability law. So it's a strict liability regime. And it, it's early days, and I haven't seen any data about what impact that's actually had so far in France. But if more EU member states you know, follow France's lead there, you have to think that's going to have a pretty big impact. Um, on how, uh, how companies producing internet connected devices are gonna be thinking about security issues in particular. Sure, it could impact cost, the rate of innovation, but also you know, security at the end of the day. Um, and you know, again, basic stuff, guys. We gotta be proactive building in cybersecurity from the start, not bolting it on after the fact. Just one interesting note, looking ahead to the state of Who's Your Cybersecurity 2020 report that I'll turn to um, in just a couple minutes here. Corporate governance is all over the map, at least here in Indiana, with regards to organizing for cybersecurity. I was frankly hoping that we were going to see some consensus about, you know, a best practice for how to organize our efforts with cybersecurity in mind. Basically, how can we not be like Equifax? Um, but we haven't gotten that message, at least for, you know, small and medium-sized businesses um, here in Indiana. It's really all over the map. We saw about, you know, 15 or so percent that designated their CEO as in charge of cybersecurity, another 14, 15% that designated their CISO, about 12%, their chief privacy officer. And for a sizable percentage, there wasn't. Nobody, they didn't have a, a, an idea, a clue about who should be responsible at the end of the day. So if that organization isn't in place, it's really tough to respond appropriately to these. So now let's focus with a little bit of that context in mind on IoT in particular. Um, the list that you guys see on the screen right here, this came from um, a couple of earlier articles, actually. Um, I did one called When Toasters Attack, uh, which came out from, uh, I think that was Illinois Law Review back in 2017. I wrote that with Steve Myers, along with a couple of the co-authors who used to head up um, our secure computing group um, here at, uh, at IU at the Luddy School. Now it's called uh, Before Leaving for Apple a couple of years ago. And you know, as part of that project, we got asked by the Senate Commerce Committee to, to write up you know, from a policy perspective what we thought of as some of the more useful takeaways. Um, and again, this, this is dated, right? This was a couple of years ago. But these are some of the takeaways that we had suggested you know, at the time. Um, and you, know, you can take a glance at them. Um, some, some we've made progress on in the, in the intervening couple of years here, right? Um, NIST, clearly, this is on their radar. Um, a lot of groups, including the U.S. Chamber, are pushing you know, NIST to come up with, uh, with an IoT-specific uh, framework, both for security and privacy. And frankly, these days, even supply chain, it doesn't make a lot of sense to have all these artificial barriers, you could argue. Um, and also, there's been some efforts on number four there. So there was a, there was a reform proposal. This was the Cybersecurity and Internet of Things Act of, um, I think it was 2016. 2017, because there was a new version in 2019. And it basically would have done number four. All right. Um, and it would have even included under government procurement, four kind of main best practices. And it was simple stuff. So basically, like, uh, the government wouldn't be allowed to buy products that had hard coded passwords or that couldn't be updated, things like that. Um, as many of you know, government, government procurement, this is, this is a good way to help start the conversation, but by no means does the federal government have the, the overwhelming purchasing power um, as it did you know, 25 years ago, for example, in this space. So it would be you know, to an extent a shot across the bow, a useful shot, um, but it would only be a, a kind of the first step in a longer marathon there. 
We haven't seen number five as much yet. We have seen the Federal Trade Commission get involved in data breaches with regards to, uh, you could kind of classify them loosely as IoT companies or companies producing internet connected devices. Particularly that's the case when they advertise themselves as at having something like best in class cybersecurity. Um, looking at you like LifeLock, those kind of companies. If you advertise it and you don't have it, they're gonna come after you. Um, uh, and there's other, there's other avenues where they're more likely, including if you're in a critical infrastructure context. And there's a lot of overlap here, right? Like we know in healthcare, a lot of medical devices these days are inter internet connected. So, so, there's, so there's, there's been some efforts there and it's gonna be interesting to see with the new Biden administration, what happens next, right? Is FTC um, going to get, you know, for example, more, more authority or more resources um, to go after this in a more meaningful way, those type of perpetrators. Um, so expanding just ever so briefly, these are some of those efforts and in, in some greater detail. I mentioned um, the top couple there already. There is, <laughs> I haven't heard of him introducing it again uh, in this current Congress yet, but there is this congressman from Georgia uh, named Graves is the surname. And he's been introducing this bill the last couple of cycles that would basically legalize active defense. So kind of private sector hackback, frankly, so long as the, as the companies did so under FBI supervision. Really bad idea, in my opinion, on a lot of levels, um, dealing with attribution, escalation concerns, et cetera. But the last time it was introduced, it did have a bipartisan co-sponsor. And there have been some states where this has gotten close to passing, including Georgia. Uh, the former governor of Georgia actually had to veto it, uh, but it got to his desk, right? So what used to be, frankly, a kind of a fringe concept is still, is still there. Um, and it's, it's interesting to see what, if anything, is going to happen with that um, uh, going forward. A lot of more interesting, though, state-level initiatives um, that I would like to talk just kind of briefly about, including not only what's happening in California, but also Ohio, right, and a number of states which are experimenting with a variety of provisions around safe harbor protections, um, as well as just defining for kind of, quote, unquote, reasonable cybersecurity and what that looks like. But quickly, at the federal level, the FTC, they got under some pressure a couple of years ago after a circuit court decision involving this company named LabMD to be more specific about what they mean when they talk about things like industry-leading cybersecurity. They were, they were using some ambiguous language for a while there. So this is the FTC's effort to do exactly that. It's a bit of a David Letterman-style top 10 list. Um, so they, they put out this kind of guide for business on cybersecurity matters a couple years ago with the thinking that if you follow these, including IoT companies, um, that doesn't guarantee that the FTC won't come knocking following a data breach, but the idea is that it would at least make it less likely. Then, of course, the NIST cybersecurity framework is still playing out here. This is now, gosh, um, seven years old. We have version 1.1 um, out. It's done a lot to define you know, or at least help help a lot of businesses think about cybersecurity due diligence in some new ways, including in the IoT context. Um, and I would just mention that more now more than 25 countries around the world are implementing versions of the NIST cybersecurity framework. Even the EU now has something called the NIST platform, uh, the Network Inf Information Security Platform, which uses the same language. So we seem to be coming together, at least on some core concepts of cybersecurity risk management, even as we're frankly diverging with regard regards to bigger questions of data governance and privacy protections, even though you think those would just be the two sides of the same coin. And this is just an example of what I just mentioned with countries. Um, this came from an article we did a couple of years ago for a symposium. I think it was called Bottoms Up. Um, I can find it. I can, I'll try to post some links in the chat box here when we get to that point. Um, and this just goes through some of the countries we looked at in some detail to show how that overlap is playing out, which is good news to an extent for businesses doing business across all these jurisdictions. Of course, with GDPR, this comes into play. Um, we're, I'm doing an article with Scott Bradner, who some of you folks may know. Um, and the, uh, we did, we've done two now actually, but this, this one is, uh, is focused on um, IoT security issues and particularly comparing the US and the EU, right? Um, so even under GDPR, there are some provisions um, at, that kind of resonate with the IoT context in particular. It of course wasn't written, you know, with IoT specifically in mind, these regulations take a long time to come together, you know, but some of these concepts such as around, you know, data portability, um, vendor management, 
do have a lot of implications in thinking about IoT security and you know, can provide something of a foundation uh, for businesses as they think about deploying these services globally. Really interesting time to have for how to do that, right? Um, Lily, you know, for example, because I used that, that uh, reference earlier, they're now using GDPR globally, right? For all their operations. Um, lots, of, lots of businesses are. Others like Microsoft are using you know, CCPA. Uh, California's approach. So even though we're not seeing action at the federal level, that doesn't mean that these decisions and you know discussions aren't taking place. Um, it's just that we're pretty late to the game. So it's going to be some combination of the EU's approach as a global baseline with some companies and countries following the more transparency-focused California approach, and others, of course, following a you know approach of cyber sovereignty. Not to you know put you find a point on it. So you know whether that's going to lead to a bifurcation of this Internet of Things concept or not, um, we'll see. Right? It definitely seems to be heading that direction. So in terms of approaches to IoT security and governance writ large, here are just some of the main concepts uh, that we've distilled, especially that last article that I mentioned with Scott Bradner. We, we have a, a section at the end of it where we talk about each of these in some detail. As I said, you know, some states like Ohio, um, Indiana tried to do this for what it's worth last year. The, the previous um, AG proposed it. Um, the governor nixed it, didn't go anywhere, but they proposed an idea of a safe harbor. But the Indiana version from last year would have only used the NIST cybersecurity framework, whereas the Ohio version has a couple of other options as well. That's one idea that's out there. Reasonableness standards are out there. California, for example, defines reasonable cybersecurity for internet connected devices in terms of the top 20 CIS uh, security controls. Um, so that's one way to go about it. Um, that's now a requirement as of last January and it started being enforced last summer in California. Um, there's disclosure requirements. That's another way to get at this problem. Codes of conduct, that's kind of interesting uh, in terms of industry groups working together to develop these types of IoT security codes. Um, that there's actually an affirmative defense written into GDPR to encourage companies to do that. So basically, if you get hit with a fine from the European Commission, but you can show that you were a good citizen, you helped develop some of these codes of conduct, then you can have those potentially, you know, quite massive fines um, reduced. Talked about trust marks, that's happening to an extent. Products liability is kind of, if you put this on a, spe a spectrum, kind of the most extreme example there. Um, and it would have, you know, obviously profound implications if that was taken up more broadly. It'll be interesting to see what happens in France in particular as that gets rolled out. And there is just a bit of a spectrum um, that, I just, that I just referenced there. Just in the interest of time, I won't get into this in any detail, um, but this is the idea of how how to think about our success to date at governing this space and um, the Lynn Ostrom tradition here at the, at the workshop at IU. We, they've developed lots of different governance frameworks over the years, which looks to see um, basically at, at, at the appearance and to the degree to which each of these design principles you see lefted, uh, listed, I'm sorry, at the left of the screen are present in a particular resource domain. And if you can show that more and more of these are indeed present, then there's basically a, a greater likelihood for meeting various you know, collective action goals. Um, it's, you can't draw a direct line there. It's a correlation at best, but we did do that as part of this project as well. So happy to talk to about that more if anybody's interested too. Um, but just in the interest of time, because I think if I remember right, I'm supposed to cut off in five minutes. Is that right, potentially? Maybe hearing no objections, I'm going to assume. <laughs> go a little accurate? longer. It's 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 more a matter of yes. just being sure that there's some time to answer questions if they come up. But you've got to right. till half past the hour. Okay. Well, okay. So we got we have technically a little bit more time the class that. runs okay, till five twenty. So, okay, four twenty, Joe. Oh, five twenty. Okay, great. Yeah, but, Thanks a but, lot, Joe. Uh, I, I doubt anybody's going to walk out. <laughs> oh, that, no, I get it. No, it's okay. It, it's tough when it's in the evenings like this. There's family responsibilities, etc. Um, I'm happy to pause there for a second, too, if anybody had, you know, questions or comments on the more of the IoT stuff, because I'd like to pivot, if that's okay, and just spend the next kind of 10 or five, five or 10 minutes giving you a few highlights um, from the state of Hoosier Cybersecurity Report. Um, and then, of course, reserve the last five, 10 minutes just for any other questions. But I, any questions so far, guys, or any comments that I can help with? I know that was basically a fire hose, so it's okay. It's okay if not. Okay, 
Hearing hear nothing so far, um, I will just keep persevering here. Feel free, of course, to use the chat box or the Q&A I just see as well, which is great. Um, oh, George. Okay, great. Yeah, let me just check this out really quick. Can everybody see? I forget if everybody can see the questions or not. Uh, but just in case, if not, as, as FedRAMP standardizes an approach to enable agencies to adapt um, to cloud services under the General Services Administration and is governed by OMB, DHS, A and B, would IoT be well placed in this government's body? Interesting question. Potentially, potentially so. Um, IoT itself is such a broad concept. You know, frankly, I worry about it being placed anywhere <laughs> and having much impact. You know, it's kind of like the idea of critical infrastructure, right? I mean, gosh, the way we've we've parsed that in terms of these, you know, 16 uh, sectors under DHS plus at this point, I mean, it, it's basically the mass, the vast majority of the US economy is now critical, right? Um, and that begs the question, if everything's critical, is anything critical? And I think we run the risk of maybe doing something similar in the IoT context, because as I said earlier, we're really hurtling toward this world. In some ways, we're already there of by default having so many of our products and services connected to the internet that I, I, I just, I'd be shocked if there was a, a, a regulator, frankly, anywhere who could wrap their uh, arms around all of these interlinking issues, right? So what do you do? You could parse, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, anybody, including you, Spath. You could parse it out the kind of the way we did in the critical infrastructure context. Um, you know, a lot of these IoT applications are already being used in those various kind of critical infrastructure silos. If you want to break down some of those barriers, maybe you could do more of an ISAL approach for IoT in particular. Um, that could be that could be one way forward. You know, CISA has obviously done some great work for critical infrastructure protection and election security. Maybe there could be a task force more focused on IoT concerns. I don't see any of that happening quickly. A lot of it um, is just being rolled out, frankly, at the um, at the state level, which is why I wanted to turn to this, you know, this example now. But it's such a great question, so thanks, and I'm happy to return to that. And if anybody has other better ideas, I'd love to hear them. Frankly, I would say as well that there are, if, if you guys haven't seen it in the Cyberspace Solarium Commission report, there are several, you know, IoT. Uh, both discussions and suggestions for reform efforts, some of which you've already discussed during government procurement, et cetera. Uh, but there are some other good ideas in there. And I think those will get some new attention um, now with the new administration. It was really unfortunate timing because that was rolled out to my recollection last March. And there were a few other things happening last March. So they kind of got lost in the noise. Um, but guys, in terms of this, this report itself, um, I will just so folks can uh, can check it out if you're interested. I'll put this in the in the chat box really quick for you. Here is State of Hoosier Cybersecurity 2020. Okay, and this is the version that IBRC hosts. So here we go. Here we go. I'd love. Here it is. Hopefully that worked okay. I'd love any comments, critiques, etc. Um, you know, the report itself has only been out a little over a month at this point. Um, so, uh, and, and it's, it's just a first effort, right? Would love to do something similar to compare other states. One of my collaborators on this is uh, from the University of Arizona. So we're hoping to do something similar in Arizona. And even of course, it'd be great to go back in a couple of years and see how we're doing um, along some of these various metrics. Okay, so plenty of caveats, et cetera, plenty of things to keep in mind. Um, so, you know, uh, first off, we should put just just a quick note of context. We this was sent out because we did it in partnership with the Indiana Attorney General's office. Uh, we got help from the Secretary of State's office, help from IBRC. So it went out to a couple thousand organizations across Indiana. Um, at the end of the day, gosh, I can't remember the specific number. I'm so sorry. I think we had something around 300 to 400 responses. Um, so by no means, you know, did we have a, you know, 90% response rate. We did have, you know, we didn't have a 1% response rate either. So, you know, take these results, in other words, with a grain of salt, uh, but it does, you know, at least highlight some important takeaways. And we're in the process now of parsing some of these data a bit more carefully, including critical infrastructure, non-critical infrastructure, small, medium-sized businesses, et cetera. So that'll be coming. Um, but so some, some good news, some bad news, as is classic, right? On the good news side of the ledger, 95% um, of organizations across Indiana are either somewhat or very concerned about cyber risk. I'm not sure if that's good news or bad news per se, but at least, at least the word was getting out, right? Um, and as we see here, compared to other types 
of potential harms, um, it's, it's kind of in a category all of its own in terms of likelihood um, of occurring and the degree of harm if it did, right? Which is, again, it's good news that at least people are aware of this problem and, um, and taking it seriously. In terms of which types of incidents that uh, organizations across Indiana were most concerned about, you can take a look at the list there. I, I, you know, some semi surprises, but a lot of usual suspects, especially given the news uh, and how much, you know, ransomware, for example, has dominated that even even before the pandemic, though, of course, we've seen quite a few incidents since then as well. Um, phishing, of course, fraud, um, not really much awareness of the problem of insider threats, right, which should again, for many of us come as no surprise necessarily, but they really did play out in, uh, in these data as well. In terms of consequences, um, this is what was listed. You guys can see the chart there of, in terms of what organizations were most concerned about, particularly information loss. Um, you know, identity theft system downtime was quite high. Interestingly, um, and again, this was done before. So most of these data were collected uh, another exercise of unfortunate timing right around the time the pandemic was really taking off kind of late last spring. Um, disinformation wasn't as high up there. I'd be interesting now, right, <laughs> given all the events of the last six months, how that might play out differently. But back then, it wasn't as high as those other categories. Another bit of good news, most organizations had not reported at least experiencing a cyber attack in the past three years. Of course, you remember the terrible joke <laughs> about how many of these, you know, actually had and weren't aware of that fact. Um, but, you know, at, le at least a little bit of good news uh, in terms of, you know, no, uh, but some, you know, no response as well was, was, was kind of dominant there. And then uh, it's interesting as well in terms of how that broke down between critical infrastructure and non-critical infrastructure, right? So lower percentage there, about half um, for critical infrastructure sectors, which again, something of a success story, perhaps thanks to the ISACs, who knows more of the focus from CISA on that particular problem. Interesting follow-up questions there to ask, but the word seems to be getting out a little bit more in that context. We did not ask about IoT in particular, probably should have um, in this survey, at least to my recollection, I think we asked about some BYOD policies, uh, but that would be another you know, great follow-up if anybody's interested. So types of cyber attack actually experience. So instead of the concern, these are actually what has been happening as reported by these organizations. You guys can see the breakdown up there. All these charts are in that report as well that the link again is in the chat box. So if you miss something and wanna refer back to it or you want more detail about how each of these is actually working, I just encourage you to you know, take a look at that. These are just some highlights after all. Um, consequences of the attack uh, that you know, was reported Obviously, data being actually exposed, unfortunately, was the highest percentage there. Um, again, on the lower side, disinformation, uh, credit monitoring, of course, this kind of plays out with what you often see, that very few people um, actually wind up purchasing <laughs> credit monitoring, even when it is offered. System downtime up there. Identity theft, you know, and fraud, uh, both, both there as well. Um, another bit of good news, the vast majority of the organizations we surveyed reported taking some affirmative steps to manage the cyber risks that they face. 94% their critical infrastructure classified organizations, so healthcare, finance, etc., reported taking um, these cyber incident prevention steps in 88%, so not too much different, but still not quite as high of non-critical infrastructure sectors. So may, maybe that designation is having some, some impact, perhaps the word is getting out to some extent. What types of steps were taken? Um, this is how the findings broke down there in terms of um, antivirus, of course, software being quite high, update and patching. We did ask uh, some questions about whether patching was done automatically or not. Of course, that plays into this. Um, so there's some information there in the report too. Uh, password changing. Interesting, you see up there, steps taken to prevent more than half talked about the, the either either purchasing or being in the process of purchasing cyber risk insurance um, for better or worse. So we'll turn to that in just a moment too. Why, did, why didn't they do more? Look at that. The number one reason is they were frankly unsure <laughs> about what preventative steps should be taken, right? With a lot fewer saying it was too expensive or too difficult or just not being aware, right? That their organization was at risk. So, that, I mean, that just tells me that despite the progress we've made um, about screaming, this is really a problem, we really need to do more, especially for those small and medium-sized businesses across Indiana here in the Midwest, you could argue, but of course, 
nationally and indeed even globally about really what those easy preventative steps are. Thinking back to that, you know, FTC guide for business, for example, how can we distill that down and not just have it be a message during Cybersecurity Awareness Month in October, but year round? Oh, Okay, I, <laughs> I apparently forgot to include information on the other cyber risk insurance component part in the deck guys. But as I said, just in brief, 50 plus percent um, did purchase insurance. Another 15 to 20% to my recollection were um, in the process of purchasing or considering uh, purchasing cyber risk insurance. One key finding on the insurance side was very few organizations were aware of what types of coverage um, they had in those policies and especially what exclusions might uh, apply. And I'm just in the process right now on that last piece of finishing up an article uh, called War Games. And it's all about the act of war and hostile acts exclusion in the cyber risk insurance policies because of the prevalence of nation state you know, sponsored attacks um, and espionage campaigns for that matter, like solar winds. It, it, it can happen, uh, we just not, not pet you a lot in this specific example, it can happen that you can be denied coverage from your insurance provider, even if you do have a policy in place that you think would cover a particular incident because of a public attribution, for example, from the US government back to Russia, um, in that case of not pet you. So it's worked, that issue is working its way through the courts now. There's some interesting ways in which the insurance industry is trying to adjust and use some different language and terminology um, to kind of get around this problem. But it does make it, it, we're seeing the process play out. Whereas even though more and more organizations are buying cyber risk insurance, what's being covered is frankly shrinking and the cost, especially frankly, because of solar winds and the pandemic is, is going up. Right. So obviously only only a piece of this puzzle, really tough to get insurance coverage, even in the best of times for things that's tougher to quantify, like intellectual property um, or, of course, impact on brand. Uh, you can get it for more things like, um, uh, you know, system downtime, credit monitoring services, stuff like that. So happy. It looks like we have only a couple minutes, which I really apologize for. I'll turn to these questions in the chat box. Happy to take any others too. I'm looking at Lauren's first here about how difficult is it to balance between having public information about the security of companies and having that information available to hackers. Does making the public make things more vulnerable? Great question. Um, we see that play out, especially in this uh, idea of the vulnerabilities equities process, which is basically the process by which you know, governments weigh whether or not to let everybody know or let vendors know about uh, vulnerabilities when they're made aware and when they basically get withheld uh, for use, frankly, as cyber weapons. And we see some of the results of that with the shadow brokers, you know, for example, breach a few years ago. Um, there's differing schools of thought about the best way to do that. Obviously, the vendors, the industry wants to have a, a norm of 100% disclosure, let the public know, let the vendors know they'd like to first, of course, then let the public know. As you point out there, the difficulty is, well, that lets the criminals know too. So best practice there would be a coordinated disclosure. So let the vendor know, have a timeline for remediation, getting a patch out, and then you know potentially let the public know um, after that. The best online resources for the most up-to-date information on manufacturing. Okay, um, so I did a whole separate, we did, we did a report at our manufacturing initiative um, down here at uh, IU. I'm getting the exact name of, the, of that. In, I think it's an institute at the um, O'Neill School. Um, but it was, uh, I did an article that came from that report on securing um, the, an internet of industrial things. That's what it was. It was basically a smart factories article. And we went and we briefed the house manufacturing caucus on that a couple of years ago. Um, so I, I would, uh, I'll just put that in the chat box here. If you're, there's not a ton written, at least from the academic side on that. So the industrial internet of things, if you just do a search for that, um, that should come up and give you some information. I know our local um, Manufacturers Association here in Indiana. I gave a talk for them on some of that, but I know they're really active. So if, if you or somebody else is interested, I would be happy to find whoever that contact person is and get you in touch because they're going to have more an, a useful on the ground perspective for uh, how that's playing out. And then let's see Krasimir's question here as well. Have you considered that getting insurance is an equivalent to improving? Yeah, specifically showing breaches are acceptable as a cost of doing business 
and the insurance is just a way to offset uh, the expense and amortize it over time. Absolutely, right? And that's a, that's a key problem with this whole, whole domain, especially if you try to incentivize you know, the purchase of an insurance from a policy perspective, right? And um, there's been some efforts at you know, trying to do that uh, because a lot of businesses just can't get insurance. They have too many uh, vulnerabilities. They have too many holes in their system. So um, you're right, that could lead to the classic moral hazard you know, dilemma. So you think you're covered, you purchase the policy and you don't put into place in the proactive cybersecurity best practices that we all know are um, absolutely essential for not only protecting your own networks and your employees and your customers, but frankly, the wider um, internet connected ecosystem that we've been talking about a little bit uh, together this afternoon. So yes, in short, um, I, I, I also am leery uh, about this. I think it's, it, it's a useful tool, especially for small businesses, which you know even in the best of times might only be one fraudulent wire transfer away from going out of business, but it cannot be a substitute. You're absolutely right, um, Krasimir, for, for those other types of more proactive actions that, that need to happen to defend, frankly, not only again, their networks, but all of us um, from these types of incidents. So great questions. Um, did I miss any others? I'm looking at the clock here and I know that I'm, I'm past 520, Joel, so apologies for that. Any other questions that folks want to weigh in on? Again, talk about a fire hose, right? Um, if not, such a pleasure. Again, I, I've, I've really, really enjoyed this. Um, and uh, feel free, please, to, to reach out at, at any point. And I'd love to continue any of these conversations. Um, and just frankly, to connect with you to learn more about what you guys are all researching as well. Thank you very much, Scott. And let's plan on sometime later in the year after everybody's been vaccinated and the world returns a little bit more to normal right. to have a visit where we can spend a little bit more time chatting about some of these things. I would love that. I'd absolutely love that, Spaff. Yeah, yeah. We can, uh, like you said, we can even use IUPUI or we could um, meet at that awesome axe throwing place. Done. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, one of those just opened here in uh, in Lafayette. So, oh, fantastic! Okay, nope, I'm there. That sounds great. <laughs> That'll do it. Well, thank you again, and thank you for everyone for attending. Um, we have a, a talk uh, next week, uh, that um, uh, same time, and uh, let me just take a quick look here because it is going to be Steve Lipner um of safe code who also has a long history as one of the few architects of certified secure systems uh he was at microsoft for uh probably about 15 years he was at digital equipment before that developed some of the uh only a1 secure systems that were on the market secure vms and then uh helped a lot with the microsoft uh security initiative and uh he is a legend in the field, uh, so be sure to tune in for that. All right. Bye for now. That sounds great. Thanks again, everybody. Have a great night. Thanks, Beth. Bye-bye.